welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our awesome pastor, Sean Richards. Hello. Mr. Walking Encyclopedia. And uh, Bo... Um, has gained the power Mr. of invisibility Invis- yeah. <laughs> over the new year. Uh, but Happy New Year, and uh, welcome to 2024. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. This is a, a weekday Bible answer program where our live stream audience asks our panel of Bible teachers questions about the historic Christian faith, whether it's reasonable to be a Christian. Uh, I like something that uh, Pastor Bo posted about how radical it is to be uh, someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus in our day and age, especially here in the West. It really is being a rebel, a revolutionary, swimming against the uh, the tide and so on and so forth. So um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It, It, I guess there's a Two ways of looking at it, right, Sean? It's a good thing in the sense that whenever the church is comfortable, it becomes complacent. And I don't mean the church as in our church, but the body of Christ, <clears throat> uh, human beings by nature. Um, um, when we don't have challenges, we don't. When we don't have struggles, we tend to get lazy. But when we're fighting for our lives, all of a sudden, what really matters really matters. (laughs) There's always going to be faithful people, regardless of whether they have to or not. But speaking for myself, I don't do those things unless I have to. So I like to sabotage myself every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, Another way, I guess, of looking at it is that um, when you live in a time where it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, doesn't really mean anything, then I guess it's easy to just be a part of the club, even if you're, as you say, maybe not genuine or not genuine enough. But uh, when it costs everything, then the decision is extraordinarily important. I've come across that many times overseas when I'm sharing with an audience in a place where their entire lives will be crumbling down if they say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so I guess it's very important to know whether or not it's true in those contexts. And so if that's someone uh, like you who is really sort of struggling whether or not um, God exists, is it reasonable to believe in the existence of a creator, <clears throat> that the universe came from nothing, <laughs> and that the intricately designed <clears throat> nature of life as we know it came about by accident? If not, then how did it get here? And so questions like that, uh, did God speak in history? Has he revealed himself in any way, shape, or form? And, of course, what sets Christianity uniquely apart from other worldviews, other world religions, is the fact that God ceased from being invisible, uh, you know, far away, and actually stepped into human history, walked and talked with us for 33 years. And so um, asking questions about the truthfulness of that is very critical. And if you are a believer, applying Scripture to your life, uh, learning how to walk in faith is also very important. So please ask us questions if you have some that are weighing on, especially start of the new year. So we encourage you to chime in. There's multiple ways you can do that. You can simply go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson. Use the chat during the live stream. You can ask your questions there. If you want to join us on YouTube, you can do that as well. Go to youtube.com and search for a reason for hope or just type in our URL for our channel. That's forward slash at a reason for hope 546. And of course, if you want to watch us, uh, not on a social media platform, but just go to our website, you can do that. You can just go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, 
and click the watch live tab and you can check us out that way we have a nifty little chat box little prayer button so if you want to make a prayer request you can do that also if you're part of our community i encourage you to download our app you can download this from the apple or google play store and on this app you have a nifty digital bible calendar of events you can listen to our teaching out uh, uh, archives where you can go through the whole bible verse by verse book by book as well as listen to this program so you can download the ccf app also add us to any amazon or roku products that you might have so if you want to uh, maybe you have a cold or something and you're at home or if you're on vacation and you have a Roku device that you carry around with you to watch your favorite programs at our channel. And then you can watch our services. Uh, our services on Sunday morning are for this year now 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And we will continue to maintain our same schedule for our Wednesday evening services, our Oasis service called uh, that we call it that and uh, it's at 6 30 p.m we're still currently going through the book of ezekiel mm -hmm. and i think we're still in book of acts right for sunday mornings we'll be for some time yeah awesome well let's uh, take a moment to pray pray for Bo. we're not quite sure if he got stuck on the road he uh, is one of those guys that likes to trek around on a motorcycle so i i'm always thinking about that but um yeah let's pray and uh, get started with your questions all right john Dad, thank you that we have the chance to serve you today. Whether it's a new year or a new morning, we ask that your mercies would accompany it, allow your word to go forth in power and in clarity, allow your people to receive it, as well as for us to relate it in a way that's accessible to your people. Thank you for the honor of being able to be a part of that process, and I ask that you would be blessed by the work you're doing in our lives every single day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get right to it. Um... Uh, we had a question that was uh, sent to us during the break. Gina wanted to know in James chapter 2, verses 26, it reads, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. She wants to know, how can I tell if what I'm doing is working for God, as if he's, as if he's a boss with expectations I'm trying to meet, versus allowing God to work through me? Even sometimes when I pray about it, I find myself doubting my actions or struggling to make decisions is that god's way of telling me no interesting question well i i guess the first recommendation would be before going to the end of chapter two start at the beginning of chapter one the book begins with a clarification as to whether someone will hear from god or not and I'll just start with the reading. My brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be give to, given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So in the setup of the entire book, what does James essentially define his terms as with faith? Well, the word itself, faith, will begin with the dictionary. It's a word in Greek, pistis, which means trust with reason, loyalty. It can apply in those kinds of contexts as an adjective or a verb. But when I say someone's faithful, it literally is describing them as trustworthy, and it goes into that kind of theme. 
Now, if we're asking then, okay, how can I demonstrate my faith? That's how the book of James progresses. Chapter 2 goes on to give not one but three Old Testament examples of how faith and action proved sincerity. And if I want to know, and that again is a word that needs defining, but if I want to know if my faith's sincere, ask how it affects my behavior. His first example was with Abraham, and he notes that when he was willing to believe God, that was how he was accounted for righteousness, so that we don't misunderstand. It's not a saving relationship. But in verse 21, it notes, when he offered Isaac his son on the altar, his willingness to trust God with the future promises of his life, and you can read this in Genesis 22, was his willingness to obey him and let God sort out the complicated details. So if I'm asking, in the case of Gina's question, does God want me to do this in my life right now? If you don't know what to do next, a la James chapter 1, fall back on what you do know. You can trust that God has got you exactly where he needs you to be, or wants you, rather. I don't think he has a need for anything. Also noting, he mentions Rahab the harlot. That's from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, where she received the messengers and sent them out another way. She put her life at risk, but knowing what she could about the God of Israel, a la Genesis 15, apparently she and her people were aware of not only the name of God, the covenant name of God, but also the promise that was given to Abraham's descendants that if they continued in their immoral lifestyles, they would receive judgment. They'd be exiled from the land, just like Israel and Judah would ultimately be many centuries later. All this is building up on that point, though, of what? Her reasons for trusting God were expressed in her behavior. It wasn't that her behavior were her reasons for trusting God. If you're employed by works, right, that's based on, okay, you do a job, you keep your job. We're saved by works. Well, that's a denial. That's a heresy. That's basically turning on its head the idea that apart from the intervention of God and the completed work of Jesus, none of us have any hope. So then what is it? Am I saved by faith or am I saved by works? The question isn't yes, the question, or the answer is yes, but the question isn't yes, it's how. What ultimately am I trusting in? And by the trusting in that, does it affect my behavior? Does it demonstrate a tangible impact on my life? We oftentimes go to extremes in illustrating this, but if I believed that, you know, this building was on fire, I could look at all the reasons I have to trust that. Are the temperatures rising? Is it getting harder to breathe? Or is it brighter in places that it shouldn't be? Those would be reasons for me to believe there is a fire and that I am in danger. But if I don't actually believe what I'm seeing, I think that I'm in a dream, it's going to cause me to continue to have this conversation with a rather dramatic background. It's not affecting my behavior. In the same way, sincerity and a belief aren't two, aren't, uh, two separate issues. They're both sides of the same coin. If you ask, okay, so if I don't believe enough to affect my behavior in God, then that means that I don't believe in God or that he's somehow upset with me? Well, just take a step back and ask if that would make any sense in any other situation whatsoever. So if I don't believe that this house is capable of keeping the rain off of my head, that it's going to somehow just be this conditional relationship of not being wet? No, it, it's a both-and principle. So if we ask James why he started with faith and not works, it's because these very conversations come up. Now that he's continuing into works, and he gave examples, I mentioned two, but the point being made is this. If we're asking the question, 
does this in fact mean that I'm saved by works? No, being saved is through trust, trust with reason. Will that trust with reason make a tangible impact on your life? Absolutely, if you believe it, which is the whole point. So where does it start? Where does it end? It's not with God's finickiness. It's not even with our instability. It's God's ability to keep his promises to us and us being a part of the process. But that means there is one, and that's the whole point. Right on. Good question, too. Yeah, thanks. Comes up a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it, it seems that sometimes we tend to overanalyze our motives. I mean, I think it's important to have good motives when we do what we do, but <clears throat> whether or not a work is working, I remember hearing a, a pastor once say that it, it's more important to God that we walk with him than work for him. And I thought that was kind of profound, and it kind of stuck with me, even though I don't always truly understand what that means. Yeah. What does it mean to walk with God rather than working with for God? And I think... <clears throat> the important thing, it seems, is that you don't have sort of a pharisaical outlook on doing good works for the sake of doing good works in the sense that you're attaining some sort of righteous standing with God. Whereas if you're walking with God, you're you're saying, I'm entrusting in my life into you. Yes, uh, God's not a boss, <laughs> but he does have expectations. Paul said, he is Lord. we don't deny the law, we establish it. Jesus said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you would love yourself, and that is a huge expectation. But we do it with a trusting relationship that God loves us. He has our best interests at heart, and uh, plan is, uh, his plans for us are our best. And so we go through it as more of an attitude of humility rather than, oh, should I do this or not? I don't know if this is God working through me or if I'm working for God meeting his expectations. Is that... Well, and I guess check the subjects of both conversations. If you're the focus of your relationship with God, then it's no wonder it's going to get depressing. You're going to either find out that your motives weren't all that pure. You're going to talk yourself out of the right attitude, place, time, or perspective. And most importantly, you're going to be focused on the unholy trinity rather than the holy trinity. If me, myself, and I, and all that I am doing wrong, all that we can contribute to this process, you miss the whole point of a work of God. But if, on the other hand, you're put in a situation where you can look back and say, oh, it's kind of neat. <laughs> I didn't even know what was going on. I just showed up for the process. I was walking with God, and he brought people along the way. Just, they don't say don't pay attention, but be the kind of person who's not just passive in their relationship with God, but deliberate from the start. Being the person who says, okay, where's God in this? Not what am I doing? Because mm -hmm. that's the whole, that's the place where pride ultimately ends up sullying everything. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, thanks for the question, uh, Gina. I hope you were able to listen in today. If not, um, uh, just remember we archive all these. We, we leave them on YouTube and Facebook. They can get lost in the um, mix of all the other live streams we have as far as our services and such. But we do categorize each uh, uh, archive of this program even though we do this every weekday, uh, we put in the title the three main questions answered. And uh, because we go into great detail and answer questions, we don't usually give really simple pat answers. We go into great detail. At least that's been my experience. <clears throat> three questions is actually quite good for a program. <laughs> uh, Bob wants to know, uh, this was uh, 
from Wednesday Wednesday's uh, Daily Star, a local newspaper. Um, yeah. So uh, a question. It was a quote. God's favoritism was the headline. So wants to know. Uh, just finished reading last Sunday's paper. Uh, this is Bob's question pertaining to this article. A, a letter writer repeated a popular lie that Israel's God's chosen people. Makes no sense. Why would creation favor one group of people over another? We're all God's children and we're all equal. Thinking otherwise is what brings war. <laughs> would you please expound on this from what Scripture says and from what the world's view might say? Yeah, there's a couple angles we can go at for that one. Uh, let it not be said that anti-Semitism is a dead topic. When it comes to the issue of, well, God's chosen people, so God has favorites. Well, that's kind of jumping a term here, because to be chosen and to be a favorite are two different things. The question is, what did you choose them for? If you were the first chosen on the you know dodgeball team or whatever, it could be because they're your quote-unquote favorite. It could also be because they were first in line. Point being made is this. If we're asking the question, what does this term mean? Like the uh, individual who wrote this article said, I guess, and, and uh, I don't know if, uh, Bob, you miscopied it. Why would creation favor one group? I don't know if they meant creator or not. might have been a Freudian slip because of where this person's actually coming from. But here's the issue. The term chosen people means something. That may seem basic, but it is actually important if you're going to get anywhere with these kind of conversations. I'm talking to a lot of anti-Semites, especially in these modern days where the actions of Hamas have reinvigorated the cause. We need to be able to effectively answer not just why do we believe that particular Hebrew man in history, but why do the words given to the Hebrew people matter to us today? Don't go through your life with two thirds of a or without two thirds of a Bible. I'm referring to the Old Testament. So where does the term chosen people come from? And the answer isn't fiddler on the roof. And what were they chosen for? Well, both answers are in Deuteronomy chapter seven. I'll start in verse six. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, note the term, to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Oh, so they're his favorites, huh? Well, let's keep reading. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, and then gives two examples from them being brought out of slavery in Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh's armies. So here's the first point. Does God love Israel exclusively, or does he love everybody? Obviously, he loves everybody. We can go to John 3.16 for that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that in of itself points out something specific. When God interacted with this world, he played by the rules that he wrote for us. He played fair. So if that's in fact the case, what was Israel chosen for? It wasn't for their size. The coining of the term specifies that the opposite is in fact the case. But because the Lord loves you, true for everybody, and 
now we're into specifics, he would keep the oath which he made to your fathers. He brought you out of Egypt. So what was the oath made to their fathers? Well, Moses is speaking in the book of Deuteronomy to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's start with that first name. What promise was made to Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, Abraham was told to get out of his country. He was living in modern-day Iraq at the time and was told to go to a land which I will show you and I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you, pay attention to that, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So if that's in fact the case, what would cause Abraham to be a blessing to all nations? What was quote-unquote in Abraham? Well, you go to the book of Hebrews and you note it was a bit more literal than you'd give it credit for. In speaking about the quote-unquote anointed one, the chosen one, the set-aside one, oh, does that mean that this figure is going to be God's favorite now? In a way. We'll get to that more in a second. He was speaking about how when he, and this is in the book of Hebrews, uh, was making tithes to Melchizedek, for instance. An individual that Abraham ran into in Genesis, who was the king over the city of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem, he was giving tithes to this man as someone who was inferior would give to a superior, the greater doesn't, uh, you know, the lesser blesses the greater. Well, this is the argument of the author of Hebrews. What was the significance of this individual? Well, when there were tithes being given, a tenth of the spoil when he was saving Lot's life, what happened? He recognized this man as a representative of God and did what? He gave him a portion of the treasure and said, I'm dedicating this to God, not because a tenth is the magic number, but voluntarily out of thankfulness for saving his life and the lives of his bodyguards. Then what happened? It notes that Levi, in a sense, was also giving tithes to Melchizedek, being in the loins, reproductive organs, of Abraham. So someone not yet even being born was, quote-unquote, in Abraham and able to give a tithe to this man. And the point the author of Hebrews was making was that there was a priesthood outside of Levi, the tribe of Israel that all the priests came from. So building up on this point then, that picture of his descendants, that in your descendants all the nations of the world would be blessed, how then does this keen out? Well, we're speaking of a God who, again, is working with time, space, and matter, this universe that he introduced by his will. And if that is going to narrow down, you know, if somehow every single ethnicity on the planet were to all simultaneously give birth to the Messiah, first of all, that'd be an image, and secondly, that would not be possible. One ethnic group would have to be singled out, narrowed down, and used by God to enter into this world physically, like he don't, didn't only promise to Abraham, but also to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that the, there will be enmity between the serpent, his seed, and your seed, singular. He, notice that, he, singular, shall crush his head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. So what is the picture being given here? Going all the way back to the moment we severed our relationship with God, he started singling out groups of people. Not the Hebrews yet. Abraham was where it was narrowed down. Starting with Seth, then to Noah, then to Abraham, then to Jacob, later renamed Israel, then to Judah, then to David, 
see 2 Samuel chapter 7, and on and on it goes. This is the process that God was using, that he chose Israel for, apart from all the nations of the world, so that all nations in the world would be blessed. How? The coming of the Christ, in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew. This anointed one, this chosen one, would be the one who would enter this world to redeem us from the fact we had severed our relationship with God. Now note that as the issue. The problem that God is allowing this world to literally tear itself apart, but in the midst of it, resolve. We all see in our own ways the unbridled evil, the ways that we were created to reflect the image of God as just being inverted on itself. Then being a new creation in Christ, we realize that ugliness is what we've been saved from. Not only being left to, you know, wallow in our ungodliness for eternity, but understanding that we wouldn't want anything less apart from his direct intervention. If that was going to happen, if God was going to become a man to live among us, to show us what God is like, ransom us with that life as he set up this system, he revealed to the people of Israel how atonement would work, how a sacrifice, not of human life, but of animal life, would be a foreshadowing of how a God's life (laughs) would ultimately be our ransom. It was all being shown through one specific nation. This is what they were chosen for. Now, if you're going to say, well, it's not fair. God should have played favorites with some other nation, or God should have played favorites with every nation. Once again, God's working with time, space, and matter. He'd have to choose one ethnic group if he's going to enter into this world at all. And I've, believe it or not, had debates with people who have said, well, if God was really, you know, As mighty as he was, he wouldn't have chosen those inferior races, his words, not mine. Uh, He would have chosen like the Norse or the Germans or the, you know, fill in the blank. Well, here's the problem with that. If you're going to set up this nation as worthy of, quote-unquote, representing God, of being the genetic heritage that God would enter this world through, then what's being shown as worthy of God's majesty? Men's genetics? No, the whole reason why God was coming is because we're all inferior. We're all rebels against God. We're all fallen, sinful, and worthy of hell, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 says. But if that's in fact the case, what did God use to bring us back from this state of lowliness, back into the glory he created for us to enjoy? It was through the lowliest of all nations. And if that's not considered a compliment, then at least consider it an honor. And I think that's the best way to deal with this, is if they're going to juggle around with these words and say, it makes no sense. How would creator, in this case, favor one group of people over another? It's because, not that Israel is the super God's children, but that God the Son would enter this world through one of them. And he happened to pick the lowliest of them in order to make a point, that it's not how good we are, it's how great he is. That we weren't saved because we had somehow figured out how to fix our own problems, but that the only way our problems could be fixed is through him entering this world in the first place. That's the point. Now, understand that this is coming from someone who is undeniably anti-Christian, the Arizona Daily Star's uh, nightmare of political activism and 
you know, Marxist thought. But when it comes to this sloganeering that you're going to hear more and more and more, you need to be prepared on how to answer this. I gave a few references to Hebrews, I gave an allusion to Ephesians, and I referenced Genesis somewhat. But if we're going to understand the term chosen people, we need to make sure that we don't just start chapter and verse with our terms, but we need to be very, very careful in catching how someone is going to play with two definitions of a word, insist on one, and then shame the text for how they're approaching it and say, well, that's just your interpretation. Okay, your interpretation makes nonsense of the text and then attacks it for being nonsensical. Wouldn't it be appropriate, this is the scenario, wouldn't it be appropriate to read the text in such a way where it not only doesn't make it sound nonsensical, but it also, say for instance, jibes more with what other passages happen to say in the same collection of books? That's what we're arguing. So if the term chosen people doesn't mean that they're God's unique creation— we're all God's creation. If it doesn't mean that God loves them more than everyone else, God loves everyone uh, infinitely by nature. But if it's something specific, then what is it? And it's something that the majority of those at the Arizona Daily Star don't know, and that's the love of God, his son, what he did in history to demonstrate his heart for us. They need Jesus, and so do you and I. (laughs) But that's where this ultimately comes down to, a worldview completely devoid of wanting to know Jesus or having a capacity to know Jesus to begin with is going to come up with this kind of manipulative tactics. And in the case of this person, again, I don't know. We're all equal. We're all God's children. Thinking otherwise is what brings war. Okay, that's pretty inflammatory. If on the other hand we're going to say, what did they mean? when they called themselves the chosen people, because with the humorous note of Fiddler on the roof, it's gotten them into more trouble than it's given them opportunities and honor. It'll be great glory for them in the future, but no more than any of us will if we are answering for the way God used us throughout our lives. Eternal rewards. Here's to being the most hated group in human history. There you go. Yeah, because... God's chosen people. (laughs) Yeah, because it put a bullseye on our back because the heart of Satan hates them more than anyone else. Why? Because it undid his authority over Mm. us forever. And that's the point. You'll never find a more direct example of the heart of Satan than in Jew hatred. But the point being made is this. With the Hebrew ethnicity, what makes them chosen, set apart, it was for God to physically enter this world. He picked one, and he did the lowliest of ones on purpose. Now, if you aren't a fan of that, I don't really care, because history is still going to stay what history says. If you're going to redefine or dictate to God what his terms ought to be, God's who he is, whether you like it or not. If you say, well, if Jesus really was God, then he would have done this and that. Once again, you're not God. You don't get to dictate to him what he can and can't do, what he ought and ought not to do. You can conform to his nature or rebel against it, but either way you're proving his point. Apart from him, you're a mess. Uh, It's no different than when the president uh, selects an ambassador to another foreign nation or a king selects an emissary. God chose, so to summarize, uh, this person is taking the word chosen people and changing its meaning to say that God only loves those humans and not the rest, which is fallacious. But the truth of it is, is that I'm understanding you correctly, Sean, is that God chose a specific people for a greater purpose because he loves all people equally. He has a special plan for them, 
And it wasn't on the basis of anything uniquely special about them, but based on God's own choice and a promise that he made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their need for being free from slavery for you know 400 years in Egypt, mm-hmm. the, the crying out to God. Genesis 15, if you want to look it up. And so um, this person completely convolutes uh, what it means to be God's chosen people. In fact, uh, anyone who is in Christ becomes part of God's chosen people, so that really means that anyone is free to join the chosen people of God by, by simply having faith in Christ. Yeah, it was the point of Romans 10. Now, ask about that if you'd like. But the point being made is just that if they... I'm trying to remember the exact fallacy here. I think it's equivocation, where you use one word and one sense of the meaning. You then use it in another way, but that's not really the case here. They just assume... uh, I guess it would be a loaded uh, statement, but it's since God chose them, not going to tell you what chosen means. Yeah, that means that he loves them more than anyone else. And he no. po- and he points out that he says we're all God's children and we're all equal. Choosing is specific. You know, when I chose to marry my wife, it's not because I believe that all women are unequal and only she uh, is not equally valuable as a human being or as a human woman. Of course, all women are equally valuable. They're all women, but she's yours. <laughs> but uh, I'm only going to get to marry one, and uh, I chose this one. <laughs> Did you hear that, Allie? <laughs> <laughs> and and so, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a... Uh, these kind of arguments are just so bad because they're not dealing with any real facts. They just make use, of, like you said, of use of a term, oh, God's chosen people. Does that mean we're not all equal? Uh, why would creation favor one group of people over another? Well, gosh, why would Americans favor one guy over another to become the president? I mean, pe- you know, there's there's a purpose in why things happen the way they are. And in little things, it's the way humans do things. We're always discriminating against people. If I have uh, a little bit of cash and I need to buy some groceries, I'm probably going to buy groceries for my three boys first. And show them a little bit of favoritism because they're my children. Doesn't mean that I believe that all children are lowly and lower than them. It's just that for my purposes, my plan is my responsibility is to take care of them. So God's plan and purpose is to take care of all humanity, but he needed an instrument, a people group that in which he would bring about that instrument. And that's why he chose Abraham and his offspring. <clears throat> and as we see from the Daily Star, those who represent the heart of Satan don't like that. <laughs> so they'll go out of their way to undermine, demonize, or discredit, dismiss the honor that God has given to them. And that's the point. Like you said, purpose, not identity. And uh, he, uh, he does mention, he says, uh, he just commented on Facebook, uh, the person who asked the question, Bob, this is a word-for-word quote oh, of boy. the writer of the article to the star. So they not only need Great a theolo- explanation, that helps a lot in my understanding. They did, in fact, use the word creation. So, that's so they not only don't think the creation, creator is creation, that's, that's one problem, but they are in so desperate need of a theologian, they also forgot to get an editor? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Why would creation favor? Uh, okay. You know the cre... Never mind. <laughs> well, thanks for the question, Bob, and I uh, hope that that was... Uh, 
a good explanation. But uh, uh, Dwayne asks again over the break, what do we do when someone calls us evil <laughs> when we have hobbies people might not agree with? Boy, I can relate to that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you want to give an example? Well, uh, hobbies, I mean, the idea of me being an illusionist has upset a lot of people over the years. Um, I've had churches whose pastor had to not let me speak because they said, if you let this man speak at our church, you're bringing Satan into our fellowship. <laughs> not because I'm an emissary for Satan or even a satanic individual, simply because I have not just a hobby, but a vocation. My vocation is, uh, I guess you could say, entertainment and more on a broader level, missions. But I use the art of illusion as a tool to entertain, to accomplish that goal. And through entertainment, I share the gospel. So you have an intent. You, more than anyone else in the room, hopefully, understand the truth behind what you're doing based on the message you're portraying yeah. you're not there to deceive people as a theological measure you're doing it for entertainment and through entertainment you understand and i know in part some of the things that this isn't something done through ritual sacrifice of birds or whatever this is something that you do by playing on where people can look at a particular time and you know confusing the eye now, if people are going to create a stigma around something and say, you know, magic is of the devil, well, all respect due to the Southern Baptist community, but that's just not true. What makes magic, quote-unquote, an issue is like anything else. What's the message behind it? Is TV of the devil? Well, you know, you see the example of a lot of stuff Disney's putting out. I'd say some of it's satanic, but it's not because it's a it is a bad show, but it's because what? It's deliberately misrepresenting, dishonoring, and demonizing the gospel. It's taking the character and nature of God and turning it on its head through all these flashing lights and familiar names and songs and so forth. The good news is they're not very good at it anymore. But the point being made is just that. When you have a hobby, you have a occupation, you have something that's being dictated to you by unreasonable people. And I mean unreasonable not just in their debate skills, but in the reasons they have for objecting to you. Then I'd say you join the silly club in letting them dictate for you what should and shouldn't be done in your life yeah. as unto the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, if on the other hand your hobbies include things like pornography, <laughs> then I'd say that there's a reason to question that. But here's the point. There's a very, I think, helpful passage both in Paul's letter to the Corinthians and to Romans where he makes the point about not causing your brother to stumble, being sensitive to one another's conscience. It doesn't mean that you can't do certain things, but if you know certain things that you've, pay careful attention, been given liberty in, would then cause your brother to stumble. They haven't been given the same liberty. Then by the law of love, regarding one another is better than yourself, regarding their immaturity, which by the way is not a position of honor, you say, well, for their sake, I'm not going to engage in that. Paul uses the example of eating meat, specifically the kind of meat that was offered to idols. Paul specifies an idol is nothing. And those, you know, gods behind them or whatever, they're nothing. That's the word idol. That's what it means. 
But if this is going to upset my brothers and sisters, then for the sake of my brother, I would never again eat meat. And he's being, you know, hyperbolic, but the point being made is that. So if I'm put in a position, you know, I can handle swearing and violence and all that other stuff, it doesn't really bother me. It's not going to affect my behavior too much. It could if I expose myself to too much of it deliberately. I don't go out of my way to poison my brain, but if I see it on a you know, game or TV, I'm more interested in the story than what's actually being shown there. You're going to perform a magic act. It's not because you're trying to become the next uh, Sai Baba or something, right? That's well, the point. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Sorry to, uh, what is it, uh, let out your long-term schemes early. That's sarcasm, by the way. We're all put in a position where we have to regard the sensibilities of others, but we also need to make sure that those others understand they're arguing from an immature position. So here's the point. I can be mature and say, well, around you then, I'm not going to put you in a position to stumble. But if on the other hand, you have a hobby just on your own, they asked, and it's like you're involved in what I could probably assume is like watching a TV show. Do you know that... I know you, Dwayne. So uh, you watch that My Little Pony show. You know, friendship is magic. Magic is of the devil. Kind of ties into that point there. And then I'm raising my hand going, you know, like every single episode of that series either had a direct or overt reference to the Bible one way or another. Like without exception, the whole Mm -hmm. TV show. And they're going to go, but it says magic. Magic. That's that's how I would approach it, Dwayne. I would simply say... I'd ask questions, what exactly is the evil? Um, I get that question all the time, like, well, you do magic. And I say, well, what do you mean? And so, you know, you, what is it that you're actually being accused of doing? Like, for example, in the church in Corinth, there was a question, and, and I'm sorry, in Romans, I think he talks about Romans uh, chapter 14, he talks about uh, uh, some people wanted to obey the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. certain holidays that this is important and others looked at every day the same uh there was like you said sean the eating meat sacrificed to idols those who were weak in faith would only eat vegetables but those who said well i know i have liberty in christ i'm gonna eat meat and uh i'm not worshiping those idols i'm not doing anything wrong i'm actually I have liberty in this and so when it comes to whatever hobby you may have Simply ask the question, well, what is the evil that's being done? And remember, Scripture is our final arbiter for truth. So it must be something that's based on the teaching of Scripture. And what the Bible does warn us from doing is is that if my liberty, for example, uh, eating meat or probably a more appropriate applicable, applicable social behavior is drinking alcohol, if I feel like I have liberty to drink a glass of wine, and uh, Sean over here uh, has a really unclear conscience about it because perhaps he had an alcoholic background and he just doesn't want that to be a sin in his life of addiction or abuse of alcohol, well, I shouldn't look down on him, is what the Bible says, for not drinking, and he shouldn't judge me for drinking. We all have to obey our consciences but there is that liberty and he would be considered the weaker one in the sense of not believing he should do it but i should not take that liberty and use it as a stumbling block for him i had something similar 
uh, with martial arts. I was really fascinated with martial arts. I had a friend who got really into it, kind of a superstitious guy, and he thought if he were to ever hang out with me and talk about the art form as far as the regular application of how to defend oneself as or as a sport that he thought it was just demonic he says the whole thing is demonic adrian if you get involved you're going to fall away from the faith and i'm sitting here thinking well the guy who runs the club is actually a christian he worked with my dad i loved wing chung i love bruce lee i love Batman and all those films so and i wanted- you hated steven seagal I don't like Steven Seagal. <laughs> so I, I wanted to take Wing Chun Kung Fu and... Uh, Actual martial arts. Yeah, Sifu Fong was one of the students of Ip Man, who is the, the master that taught Bruce Lee. So I thought, this is one of Bruce Lee's fellow students. Happens to have his own club here in Tucson, Arizona. You're darn right I'm going to go take classes because Chinese boxing is cool and fun. And, uh, and of course... Uh, you know, I could see how someone might think, well, there's Eastern mysticism embedded in that. Well, that's not what we're learning. Uh, so I could see how someone might have concerns. But again, just ask the question, well, what is the evil being done? Is it the potential of me committing an act of evil? Well, intent matters. If I don't know whether this piece of meat is sacrificed to idols or not, uh, what difference is that going to make when it's being digested in my stomach? Zero. If people who use martial arts do get into Eastern mysticism, and I'm just learning boxing techniques, uh, intent does matter. There's nothing wrong with learning boxing techniques, uh, even if it's just for sport and for fun. Uh, And so, um, you know, that's the thing you have to really ask is, well, what's the real evil being committed here? Show me where in scripture it says you cannot do such evil, (laughs) like learning how to box. And, uh, and, and, and go from there. But I wouldn't uh, talk my friend into going to a class with me if it really was a stumbling block for him, then that would be, again, love is the supreme sort of ethic that we live by. Am I being loving to my brother or my neighbor by engaging in this hobby or not? And so on and so forth. But, but uh, you'd you be know. just as much a loser as if you looked down on him and right. said, are you yeah. so immature in your faith that you can't see the difference between boxing mm-hmm. and bowing down to Krishna or whatever? And that's the point. Don't let the dictates of unreasonable, and I mean unreasoned, people set the tone for how you live your Christian life. If on the other hand, you have the opportunity to love and be gentle with people, note this, say, three-stage process. Stage one, they find out that you like that show or you uh, participate in this hobby or you have this affiliation with something that stumbles them. Does that knowledge put either of you in a relationship quandary as far as your standing with God is concerned? Not at all. You know that you have that liberty. I know that I have my liberty. It can stop there. Stage two would be going into interactions. I see that you watch that show. You have that hobby. These are my thoughts about it. What do you think? Well, these are my thoughts. What do you think? Have we violated any conscience at this point? No, we're talking. We're asking questions. Where the bad situation comes in is then stage three, you come to conclusions about each other. You're so weak in the faith that you can't handle this. You can't see past those superficial details and realize there's legitimate gospel opportunities here. Or, oh, you're so fallen and sinful and reprobate that you've been uh, demonized and taken over by the spirit of magic or whatever. I 
wouldn't care to hear what anything, anything that that person would have to say at that point. Why? Because it's an immature conclusion, not an immature individual. They can be loved and be patient with, but an immature conclusion, that's what you need to watch out for. So someone calls you evil, that's between them and the Lord. What you're doing as evil or not is between you and the Lord. Just make sure that, as Adrian said, there are things that are evil by nature. But insofar as you're approaching it, like, say, for instance, me reading the Quran, is it a satanic piece of literature? By definition, but what's my intent? It's to yeah. be able to effectively engage with Muslims on their terms about the gospel. If I'm, you know, watching a show and it happens to be something very stumbling to me, who's the loser in that? I am, because I'm putting mm -hmm. myself in a vulnerable position. If I'm engaging in something that isn't necessarily helpful, but it's not harmful either. What's the principle? Wisdom. Is this healthy yeah. for me? Is this helpful for me? We'd That's often ask questions like, is this an eating meat issue? To kind of bring context to the conversation. Is this an eating meat issue or is it a genuine sin issue? The, if the hobby is sinful in that it breaks the law or violates God's strict prescriptions on how we ought to live, then Jesus uh, yes. wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's an eating meat issue, then find out, okay, well, um, maybe you, you wouldn't do it, but uh, is it really evil in and of itself? And you can have those conversations, I think, if so long as the, in, the intent of someone saying, gosh, I think that's evil, is sincere. Um, and conclusions are Would have been withheld. interesting if you had shared what the hobby was, but uh, maybe... <laughs> maybe uh, no, I, I think, uh, again, I've dealt with this too. Uh, he's uh, one of my fellow bronies, so he's probably being demonized for that because the theme of the show is magical horses and stuff, but that's, oh. that's the point. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and, and I, I could see how there would be an argument for avoiding... Yeah, no. Because, you know, we we're told to not even speak what sinners do in private. Don't even speak about it. Uh, and, and we're not to celebrate, you know, avoid coarse joking. You let your speech give grace to those who hear. Those kinds of biblical principles can very easily be violated by um, t television. And so we do have to pause, especially when it comes to content that we're consuming that can influence our thing. Yeah, maybe I'm not going to go around and start cussing all the time or do or live out the worldview, like the magic part of it, of the broskies and, or what do you call it, bronies? <laughs> yeah, bronies, bro, ponies and bros, but that's another topic. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess there is a good place to give pause, to say, okay, am I, am I doing something that could be harmful to myself, even if I don't recognize it as being harmful at the moment, and, and weigh things very, very well, you know, be, be sober-minded. Got a follow-up clarification from D. Roscoe. If our hobbies occupy more time than our time in the Word, then is it an issue? I go out of my way to try to incorporate both as much as possible. If you have the opportunity to spend time on anything, do it with an open Bible and ask, where's Jesus in it? If it's causing you to neglect the Word, then I'd say that's not helpful, but it's not, well, well negative or positive growth harmful either. The idea is, okay, if I have the choice between negative, neutral, or positive, how about if I take the neutral and make it positive? That would be my philosophy. Yeah, and as far as time, and I struggle with that. I love playing video games and hanging out with friends and going to movies. And if you're neglecting life responsibilities, if you're not being faithful in what you're supposed to be doing, and this area of your life is stripping you away from doing that, then I could see how you might want to reevaluate what you're doing. 
But if it's just by itself, say, gosh, I, I do this one thing uh, more than I do spending time in scripture. Well, I do a lot of things more than I do reading the Bible, like sleeping, eating, maybe <laughs> um, spending time with my kids. So, you know, again, um, is it preventing you from spending time in God's word? Uh, or is this an alternative to where you don't want to get in God's word and it's just taking you away from your other responsibilities? Um, <clears throat> that's kind of a, kind of something you need to just evaluate. <clears throat> All right. Got some, uh, yeah, we got some, here. we got, we have a, by the way, if you, if you do attend here at Calvary, we have a little box that you can drop questions in on little notes. So if you go into our uh, main building, there's a reason for hope sign and you can actually write down a question. And so here are a few that we got uh, over the holiday. If angels were unable to reproduce, oh boy, <laughs> handwriting. <laughs> I, already, I already know where this is going. Uh, if So if angels were unable to reproduce in the heavens, in heaven, how were they also able to produce with Daughters of men. Okay, so yeah, I, I think the, the question Genesis is: six. If angels were unable to reproduce in, reproduce in heaven, how were they able to produce offspring with daughters of men in Genesis six? The answer is they didn't. That's why we come to that conclusion. Um, when it comes to this issue, there's two main camps. I'll do the one that I disagree with first, just so you know. I can give both a fair hearing and not call you an apostate. Uh, can lead to some weirder conversations, but that's another issue entirely. When we're talking about this, what it's usually referred to as the Nephilim issue, um, the position that I disagree with is that there were, well, <laughs> oh boy, um, they were an attempt on the part of demons to create a hybrid human and angel entity that would disqualify them for salvation, a la Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, where it notes that God does not send aid to angels, but does give aid to the sons of Abraham. So if the flood of Noah's purpose was to wipe out this human hybrid angel race that wouldn't be savable, uh, the flood of Noah would then have to be basically treated as such for that, that the intervention on God was so direct because it was such a serious violation. The proof text they would go for this would be to uh, Genesis 6 and verse 9, where in contrast to the sons of God and daughters of men's offspring, it notes that Noah's generations were perfect. That set the case that his family legacy was what qualified him to be savable or not. Uh, the second is in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, and Jude chapter Jude in verse 6, where they mention angels who sinned in the past that went after strange flesh. Uh, then they also note in the next illustration that Sodom and Gomorrah were also judged for sexual morality. Therefore, they say, well, the angels were judged, Sodom and Gomorrah was judged for sexual morality. They'd basically do the law of linguistics in reverse and say, the subject wasn't brought up first. We aren't told what they are, but we are told what the second group did. Therefore, we assume the second group did what the first group did. That's not necessarily the case, but I'm kind of jumping the gun here. The point being made, though, is this is all based around Hebrews 2, 16 through 18, where it notes that they're incapable of being saved for their sins, which is a necessary premise to this plot. The problem is, as you stated, 
Genesis 22.30 is very explicit. Jesus, in a conversation with the Sadducees and their dismissal of the concept of a resurrection, are informed of something they didn't consider. Their assumptions before the, reading the text were false. He said, don't you know that in the resurrection they, uh, that human beings are like the angels? They neither marry nor are given in marriage. So if there's no, quote-unquote, illegitimate relationships happening in heaven in a perfect state, and no one is engaging in in those kinds of relationships in the heavenly state. These non-reproductive beings is how we come to that conclusion. These are spiritual entities. Uh, also note, when people make the argument, well, it says sons of God there. In the book of Job, it notes that sons of God is in reference to angels. Nowhere, nowhere else in the Old Testament is the term sons of God used to describe anything other than heavenly beings, as long as you don't read Hosea 1.10. Uh, there's also a problem with the flood of Noah idea that the book of Numbers 13, 32 through 33 refers or uses the same term that the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men were giants in the land, fallen ones. Uh, apparently God missed, if that's your assumption. I don't believe that. The Nephilim isn't talking about genetics is the point, and there is no biblical precedent for your genes invalidating your ability to receive salvation. Here's our conclusion. Genesis 6 is a follow-up to Genesis chapters 4 and 5. The immediate context set it up in that there was the godly line of Seth in Genesis 5 and the ungodly line of Cain in Genesis 4. The ungodly relationships, which Israel would have a problem with, which is why they were told about it in Numbers 25, was an insight into avoiding these kind of situations because it just gets that serious. It causes those kinds of compromises in your relationship with God. I don't think that people who teach the opposite are false. I just do think they're mistaken. It's a secondary issue, but understand the premise. Thank you, Sean. I was, I'm always baffled why people just assume that it giants and angels <laughs> procreating wow. with humans well thanks for tuning in today uh, Pastor Scott and Sean will be in tomorrow as well as Dave so have a great evening we'll see you tomorrow you've been listening to A Reason for Hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com you can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.